in the, in the morning. Uh, any other announcements you will find in your bulletin or on the website, just go to TimberlineChurch.org. We're continuing our series called Little Big Books. Little Big Books are those books in the Bible that are small in size, but they can have a punch. And so um, today we're talking about 3 John. It's a little half page of note paper in your Bible back toward the book of Revelation, toward the end. But we're calling our thoughts the real deal. Just the other day I was talking to somebody and we were talking about someone in a good sense. And when we got done talking, both of us looked at each other and said, that guy is the real deal. When you say it's the real deal, what we mean by that is that we mean it's authentic. Whether it's a product you're, you're producing what you promised or you have character, you're genuine. In a, in a day of spin, in a day of smoke and mirrors in our culture, in a day where it's said there are no absolutes, in a day when you're getting a thousand messages a day on your phone, which might be a slight understatement. I don't, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable number of messages. And you keep asking yourself, is that true? Is that like, is that real? I, that couldn't possibly be right. Or I heard this other opinion, whatever it is. Here you have third John that comes along and talks about what it means to be real. At least that's my faux interpretation, my faux understanding of it. And we'll we'll get into that in just a moment. John, the author of this little note to a friend, wrote five things in the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John, which is the history piece. This is the story of Jesus. He wrote the book of the Revelation, which is prophetic. It's about things to come and it's hard to understand sometimes. It's got all kinds of dramatic things in it. And then in between those two, there are these three letters to three different folks. And they're succinct and they're practical. And we're taking the third one of that to talk to you. Now, John, when Jesus chose him, he was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, young guy. Here he is with scarred feet, scabbed up feet. You say, how do you know that? Well, they fish barefoot. I have friends who fish barefoot who are commercial fishermen on the outer banks of North Carolina, fish with long nets. And with all those fish in the boat, your feet are getting cut by dorsal fins and gills. And, you know, fishermen's feet are not pretty. Well, he had those. He's a young guy. And in that, in that process of growing up on the Sea of Galilee, every morning of his life, probably, he watched the sun come up over the Golan Heights to the east. And later, when he was older, again, almost as old as when he wrote this letter we're going to talk to, these are the words he penned. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life. This is John 1. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. I wonder if he's remembering the sun coming up over the Golan Heights. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here's this young fisherman who years later pens these words that are profound by the anointing of the Holy Spirit in his life. He, with Peter and James, two other fishermen, were the closest to Jesus. Here are these rough-hewn, fierce, in some ways, fishermen, who are Jesus' closest buds, if you will, in his days on earth, in his public life. It's, it's Jesus' first small group. It's Peter, James, and John. And if you've not been in a small group, I encourage you, that's sort of the, that's sort of the core of the kingdom. We'll have small groups in the fall. We're, we're studying the book of Ephesians, and we're going to coordinate that with the weekend services. But... This idea of how John thinks about the kingdom comes into play in his writings. He's now 90 plus, probably. And in that, he writes this letter to a friend named Gaius. 
We don't know who it is. We don't know where he is, except many commentators think that he was in a town somewhere east of Ephesus in what is now Turkey. It's only 15 verses, so I'm going to read the whole thing. It'll be on the screen, or if you have your Bibles, turn to it. See, it's just that much. It's just like a half page of notepaper. Here it goes. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Listen for the word true or truth in these 15 verses. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a matter worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So here are people who are missionaries going out to share the good news about Jesus. And Gaius is showing them hospitality at his home, taking care of them. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, here's the second character in the letter. And this guy's not so hot. Who likes to put himself first. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. First, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whatever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius, here's another good guy, has received a good testimony from everyone and from truth, from the truth itself. We also had our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. We will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. The real deal is interesting just in the phrase itself. Real means authentic, genuine, without facade, trustworthy, clear absolute a deal is a contact or a or a transaction so when we engage with somebody and they're authentic and true and they keep their word and they walk in seemly ways and aren't liars and all that we say he or she's the real deal we use that idea the idea of real or true in our language all the time when we want to affirm something we say that person is just true blue or he doesn't, he doesn't seem to have a true north in his life. He doesn't, he's sort of out of whack. He, he doesn't have a track to run on. Or, boy, that statement rings true. Or, isn't he a solid citizen? Or, she's pure gold. We use language like that as a certificate of authenticity, if you will. So here is John, an old man, now, sending a note to a faithful and hospitable friend, Gaius. He commends his words and his works and he commends Demetrius, this other fella, and in the middle he slams this guy, Diotrephes. So you got two generous guys on both ends of this little letter, and a guy in the middle who's a self-centered jerk. Apparently, I did. Yeah, that's not Bible. That's both right there. And, and, but in just a few paragraphs, John creates a baseline for how we become the real deal, and it's found in truth. When you believe and walk in the truth, it starts making you real if you will there was a film some years ago some of the guys saw it i'm sure 
good few men with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson and these guys. And there's an iconic scene where the young Navy attorney, Tom Cruise, is, is getting into it with Nicholson, who's a hard-bitten Marine Corps colonel. And, he, and the colonel says, what do you want from me? He says, I want the truth. And he says, you can't handle the truth. Well, the fact is, I can't handle the truth much of the time. Because truth has a way of demanding something of me. I've spent chunks of my life trying to avoid truth about me or about situations. I've denied that or, you know, I, I go this way because I don't want to have to face what's reality. And the, the fact is that truth has some sharp edges. Truth doesn't change. I have a friend in D.C. His name's Fred and he's in his 80s. And a while back he was saying, you know, I was talking to the Lord the other day, Dick. I said, really? What did he say? He said, Fred, one of us has got to change. <laughs> truth doesn't change. We change to accommodate or fit to the truth. So point one on your bulletin is truth is a place to live. Truth is a place to live. This phrase, I, I love it that you walk in the truth, John says. I want all my children to walk in the truth. What does that mean to walk in the truth? I, I see it in my mind. I'm not an artist. I have artist friends who are in the, in the congregation today, but I'm not an artist. But I see it as sort of like walking in a field of wildflowers. I'm walking in the truth. I'm, I'm basking in its beauty. I'm, I'm, I'm getting its smell, if you will. Ruth, my wife, is a gardener. She goes out every morning. She, she waters. We have a watering system, but she waters and she digs up stuff and puts mulch and compost. She deadheads stuff. You gardeners, you know, that's, that's gardener language. You deadhead stuff. And it gets more blooms and all of that. And she's planted lavender. And we have some lavender in front of our house. And I like walking out and just putting my hands down in the lavender, trying to avoid the bees. And just, just rub that on your hands and you smell it. Because lavender gives off a fragrance. If you walked in a field of lavender like this little girl. You start smelling like lavender. When you walk in truth, you get the smell of truth on you. When you walk in, in an environment where truth is calling us to account in a positive way, it does something to make me a real person. You say, but how do I get there? Well, listen to, listen to where John starts. And these are two verses from the Gospel of John. One from the first chapter, one from the 14th chapter. And the word was made flesh, talking about Jesus, and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What a tremendous combination. Siblings, grace and truth. Twins, if you will. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here we have grace and truth working together in Jesus. And grace is the atmosphere. Grace is the, is the context that brings truth to me. If you just hit me in the face with truth, it's hard on me. But when you put grace, when grace comes along and says all the truth about your history, why don't we just take care of that? Why don't we take all the junk in your life and just wash that away into the sea of God's forgetfulness? And let's start fresh going forward. My grace will still be operative. But in that now, instead of believing your truth, instead of believing your junk, instead of narrowing it down, we'll broaden it out and give you a base in reality that lasts forever. When you welcome grace and truth into your life, when you welcome Jesus in, because he welcomes us in, when we welcome grace and truth in Jesus into our lives, it's not hard to welcome others. 
So it's, it's clear to understand why Gaius would welcome guests or missionaries, because it's just an extension of the welcome that Jesus has given to us when he put grace and truth in our lives. When I decide about truth, my whole world changes. Here's the truth. I'm going to share something that will stun you. You and I are not God. Are we good with that? It's a great day in my life when I woke up. Because when you try to be God, you give yourself spiritual hernia. I'm just telling you that. You are not wired to be God. And when you understand that you are not God, it frees him up in your life to be God, which is the right relationship. When that happens, when you, when you step into that idea, you step into a field of truth. Two words in Scripture say it all, in the epistles, in Paul's writings particularly. These are the two words. In Christ. When you are in Christ, you are a new creation. When you are in Christ, your ears get unplugged so you can hear truth. When you are in Christ, your eyes get opened so you can see truth. Jeff Lucas, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the woman in his life, other than his wife, who introduced him to Jesus, a teacher in his school by the name of Pam. You remember that? Some of you were here remember that. I had a teacher in my life like that. Like that. I was raised, as many of you know, in my early years in a British boarding school in India, up in the tea plantations. They had chapel in the morning, and Miss Smith, a rotund, rosy-cheeked, single lady from New Zealand, after she gave a little talk about Jesus in chapel, said, if you want to know more about Jesus when this chapel is over, go to the principal's office. Well, the principal's office is a huge hurdle to the kingdom of God. But I went to the principal's office and I, I gave as much as I knew of me at seven years old to as much as I could understand of Jesus. And that's where truth started working in my life. Point two, truth unlocks doors. Lies lock me in. Truth unlocks my door and lets me out. Lies wear my memory out. You know this. If you lie, you've got to have an incredible memory to remember who you said what to. But truth just stands on its own. And our, our human tendency, I've got to tell you this. I don't know if it's true for you. I know it's true for you. My human tendency is to lie. Well, not bold-faced lies, but like exaggeration or a little shading it here or doing a half-truth. It's been well said. The problem with half-truths is you don't know which half you're getting. And the, and the, the point of it is... This book starts with a story about Adam and Eve, and there's a lie right at the heart. First story in the Bible is about people who lie. God says, do this, and they do this other thing, and then they hide out. And here's Adam and Eve hiding behind the tree, as it says in the story. And God comes and walks in the garden, and he asks this I love this. Adam, where are you? Well, he's God, for Pete's sake. He knows he's behind the tree. What's that about? It's, it's, a, rhetorical, it's a rhetorical question. I know where you are, Adam. Do you know where you are? The problem with lying is it takes your true north out and you get disoriented and you don't know where you are. And in that process, we end up unstable. There is no stability in untruth. Lies create a sand foundation that erodes easily under any kind of pressure. We always work with little kids to tell the truth. We always want our kids. We have stories about truth tellers and so forth. And, you know, with four and five-year-olds, it's hard for us to understand. Because when you were four or five, fantasy and real is like the same world. So you're playing with imaginary playmates. 
How many? No, I won't ask that question. We, we, you know, you're, you're having tea with Nino and you're playing ball with Ferdinand or whatever. You're over, and you have all these imaginary. So parents are trying to get you to tell the truth, but it's sort of all blended in. One of my favorite stories is a young boy, six years old, walks in. His mom's playing bridge with a few friends. He says, Mom, there's a tiger in the backyard. She says, Johnny, there's no tiger. He said, it's huge. It's a tiger in the backyard. She said, Johnny. He said, come. see." She walked out. She looked. It was a huge orange tabby cat, but hardly a tiger. Excuse me, a lion. It was a lion, he said. Hardly a lion. She said, Johnny, you have got to stop telling stories like this. You go to your bedroom, and you need to ask God to forgive you for telling stories like that. Johnny goes up to his room after a little bit. He comes back down and one of the ladies friends said, well, what did God say, Johnny? Johnny said, well, I asked him to forgive me and he did. But he said not to worry about it too much because the first time he saw it, he thought it was a lion, too. (laughs) I love that story. Truth unlocks our doors. Lying keeps us in prison. Every relationship you have that has any quality to it is based on truth. Any business enterprise you have has any quality is based on truth. Any mission you're involved in is based on truth. Loving truth. When I start walking in truth and loving truth, it leads me into reality. It makes me real. So Jesus said to the Jews in John 8 who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you immerse yourself in who Jesus is and what he teaches, every day you get your doors unlocked in some way. Every day you become more real. And then, of course, there's diatrophies. There's this guy in the middle in this letter that John says. Don't be like that guy who likes to be first. Point three, when I like to put myself first, truth and all those around me suffer. I'll say it again. When I like to put myself first, truth and all those around me suffer. One more time. When I like to put myself first, truth and all those around me suffer. My father-in-law, Roy Blakely, about whom I'll say a bit more in just a couple of minutes. I worked with him for 15 months. He was a pastor. He was the most gracious, most welcoming, most hospitable, most caring, gave you the most space, Wonderful guy, great heart for Jesus, great heart for missions. And one day we were talking about the church and folks in it. And I said, that guy's really a nice guy. He's enthusiastic. He's good. And, I, and he said, yeah, he is. He's really good. He said, but you need to know something about him, Dick. I said, what? He said, he'll do anything for you or for the church as long as you give him a parade. He said, don't be like that. Just serve. God will give you the parade when you need it. But don't do that. And I asked myself, do I need a parade? Do I like to be first? Do I? Because when I put myself first, then I have to put you and you and you second, third, and fourth. That's how it works. Point four. When truth becomes my trademark, everyone wins. Everyone wins. When truth becomes my trademark, everyone wins. I have the great privilege of having truth tellers in my life. Ruth is probably, that's my wife, she's probably my best truth teller. I'll be speaking like this someplace around the country and we'll be driving back to the hotel or to our home or wherever we are. And uh, 
She might say something like that was a good it was a good thought, Dick. Thank thank you for that. And then she'll say, but that third story that you used to illustrate that point, you didn't uh, you didn't need that third story. And I say, but but I like that third story. She said, yeah, but but you didn't need that third story. And I say, yeah, but I like that third story. So we have a lot of that that goes on at our house. Or, or when I'm laying on the couch some years ago and she's in the kitchen, I said, Ruth, could you, could you just bring some grapes? They're there in the, in, the, in the refrigerator. And she walked in with a bowl of grapes and handed them to me, stretched out on the couch. And she said, uh, I said, thank you very much. She said, you're welcome. She said, you, uh, you really like to be served, don't you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, I do. I, li- I like to be served. So, so both of us were telling the truth there in that situation. Or... My favorite, and some of you have heard this, when I was a young college president, I was 36, 37 years old, first year president, a lot of economic challenges in a small college. I'm putting out fires all day long. I get home, we've got four kids under the age of 12. I walk into the house, and there are toys all over the front room floor. Well, if you've got four kids under the age of 12, you're going to have toys all over the front room floor. But I was, you know, you, you tend to take stuff out on people that love you, and they'll put up with it, maybe. And... And I said, Ruth, how come there are always, keyword, how come there are always toys on the front room floor? She looked at me and smiled, looked at the children and said, kids, you better get the toys picked up. The president's home. <laughs> now, 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 some people would see that as sarcasm. You know, I'm impaled here, you know, and I, I, cho- I choose to see it as Jehovah's nudge, you know, that God will speak to you the way you hear him. He will put truth tellers in your life. And Roy Blakely, her dad, was one of those. Her dad, Roy, was the real deal. Roy Blakely wore many hats besides that one. He was a husband, he was a father, he was a pioneer, he was a farmer, he was a pastor, he was a fixer, he was a dreamer. If you wanted counseling from Roy, you didn't go to the church office. You went and helped him pour concrete for somebody as they were building their house. He was pastoring, but he's good with concrete and a shovel. He wasn't a Finnish guy. He was just, you know, the bulk guy. And, or, or you'd get on the tractor with him and go and harvest alfalfa or something out there in the Central Valley of California. He's, he was the real deal. He would call me at 5.30 in the morning, say, Foth. He always called me Foth. I'd say, yes. He'd say, did you hear what happened? I'd say, no, what happened? He said, the sun came up again today. <laughs> Fantastic. And we need to go help Roy Hempel put a roof on his garage. I'm a city kid. I've never seen tar paper on a roof. I don't know how to handle a nail. I do it. But he's got me up there because he was the real deal. What you see is what you God. And so I'm 10 years old at a camp and he's the speaker. Three years before I'd given all I knew of my seven-year-old life to all I could understand of Jesus. And he helped me with that in my 10-year-old life. Because we keep adding rooms as we age. And we, and we need to be able to say, not to come to Jesus again, but you're saying, here's, here's my life. Here I just want to stay in that relationship with you. I want it to be in the moment and real and right. And he helped me with that. And when he talked to me as a 10-year-old kid... He didn't talk down to me. It, it made me feel like I was real when he talked to me. And then when I was 21, 
I didn't know he had any kids when I was 10, found out he had a daughter, decided to marry her, asked for her hand in marriage, but my parents' own deal was coming apart at that point. And I thought it might be genetic. I was scared. Some of you get it. And I told him that, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he told me the truth about what he felt, because I had just told him the truth about what I felt. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Dick, you just love Ruth and love Jesus. I trust you. And it unlocked my door and let me out. Or when I was three years later working with him, and I'm a young hotshot, I got a master's degree, I think I know a lot of stuff, and I say, I, I want to go with Ruth and do a church plant at the University of Illinois. He said, okay, and I'd only been there 15 months, that's not a very long tenure. He looked at me and said, both if you're going to do that, three things you need to know. You're going to turn around a couple of times and be an old man with white hair. said if you're going to pastor you need a spirit that's sensitive to God and a hide as tough as leather and thirdly in working with people never back somebody into a corner with no way out because if you do that there's only one way they can come out that's fighting and we don't need any more of that those three things have held me in good stead for the last 40 some years he lived in reality with the God who loved him and the people around who loved him when I think of real, I think of Roy Blakely. When I think of real, I think of the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. Some of you know it. It's a kid's story about animals in a nursery that wake up and talk to each other at night. This is how it goes. What is real, the Velveteen Rabbit asked the skin horse one day. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the Velveteen Rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or who have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. And your eyes drop out. And you get loose in your joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly to people who don't understand once you're real you can't become unreal again it lasts for always he was the real deal Roy Blakely what you saw is what you got he was a straight talker he was vanilla slice him anywhere he was the same all the way through at his memorial service all these people were talking I was the end guy I thought man they're going to take all the stuff but one guy got up and read 1 Corinthians 13 which is the love chapter this is what love looks like he didn't make any comments stood up read the chapter said that was Roy sat down that morning early in the morning mom Blake we called her mom Blake got up early in the morning and said anybody want any of granddad's old hats he had these old greasy caps he loved to get on a tractor and go through 15 acres of what they call in Modesto California almonds the rest of the civilized word calls them almonds but it's almonds in Modesto California he had all these greasy caps and we all grabbed some they were like this grungy caps put them on at his memorial service the pallbearers were 
11 grandsons, 13 grandsons. He had 23 grandkids, 13 grandsons from 7 to 29. When the service was over and it came time to carry out their granddad's casket, this was a grandfather who when they came to his house, he'd load him up in the back of the pickup and take him to an ice cream store. Or they'd go out and pick peaches off the trees and put them in canned milk and made homemade ice cream and sit around and talk about Herman the horse or the royal pig or he made up just stories. They knew he loved them because he put up with their junk in part. So they're sitting in the front row and it comes time to carry the casket out. They're there in suits and when they stand up to carry out the casket, they all reach down under the pew and pull out one of these old greasy caps. Put it on and we're, we're gone. I mean, we're balling, you know. They carry out his casket. They said, we're going to buy the old, go buy the old home place on the way to the cemetery out in the country. And so we, 60 cars, family members, start out Carver Road, north of Modesto, California. The green is just coming to the vineyards and to the orchards, the peaches and the almond orchards. And we get to the corner of Carver and Ladd where the old home place is. And the, and the, the hearse slows perceptibly like tipping the flag to a fallen soldier. When he does that, the kids in the second car start honking their horns. And all of a sudden, all the cars are honking their horns. And the windows come down. And these caps come out the window. And the boys start shouting, Granddad, you did it. Granddad, you did it. And sun- sunroofs are back and hankies are waving. The cheers are rolling out through the orchards. And I'm saying, what did, what did Granddad do? What he did was he loved God with his whole heart, loved his neighbor, his family as himself, and walked in truth. And it made him real. And kids get real. Anybody gets real. And where he's buried in Escalon, California, amidst peach orchards and almond trees, on his gravestone it says, A man who loved God. I submit it could have said, He was the real deal. Bow your heads and your hearts with me this morning. In our closing time, I just uh, I want to offer a prayer to the Lord, and I'd like you to join me if you wouldn't, if you would be open to that. I'm going to pray out loud in short phrases, and I'd like you out loud to follow me in prayer. If you're here and you don't know anything about Jesus very much, or you've heard about him, but you've never, you've never sensed him in the way you're sensing him this morning, that's because this, his spirit is at work in your heart, and he's drawing you to him. And you may, even as we pray, you would consider this a prayer of saying, Jesus, I want your grace and truth in my life. I want to submit what I know of my life to what I understand of you, just like I did at age seven. And you'll do that even as we pray this. You'll take these words as that commitment. Feel free to do that as we pray together. So I'm going to pray out loud, short phrases. Follow me, if you will. Dear Jesus, you know me like the back of your hand. There's nothing about me you don't know. And you still want me. Thank you for bringing grace and truth to me. I receive it. Help me to walk in it. Help me to have a spirit of hospitality. And a generous heart. 
Help me to press in and be close to you every day. May your truth live in my heart and in my mind every day of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer or a prayer like that for the first time and you want help, you say, okay, I did that. Like, what are next steps? Where do, where do I go on the journey? We have some packets like this in the uh, stairwells right over there and over there and also at guest services. Before you leave, just slide down here and grab one of those if you would. It'll be a magnificent journey. There'll be friends to help you. Best choice you ever made. Our prayer team is coming this morning. I love the prayer team that comes. They, they make themselves available because some of us here have challenges and need in this moment where we need somebody just to stand with us, just to have a prayer for a moment at the end of this service. These are folks who love to do that and to share your life with you in that way. So feel free to come at the end of this time. So I was thinking about the benediction, which I always like to think about because it's the last thing we remember going out the door. That passage from Psalms says it this way. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So there. Go in his grace. The service begins now. God bless you.